People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is Friday the 22nd of June. It's a cold day outside, although the sun is shining. But it's perfect weather for reading. And this is Thriller Friday. We've got the whole show devoted to thrillers. Just a few announcements before we start the thrillers. The first announcement is that all the books that we have uh, reviewed, mentioned, all the authors that we've interviewed over the last two years, everything that we've done on this show is posted on our Facebook page. So go to Facebook and search for People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. You will find all the books that have been discussed here and all the interviews mentioned on that Facebook page. Also, we do have our People of the Book show podcast on the Chai FM website. So go to Chai FM, look for podcasts, go down the schedule. You have to scroll across to the right to find Friday. Click on People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM and you will see all of our shows, our podcast. If you've missed an interview, if you've missed a show, you can easily catch it up on our podcast on the Chai FM website. The, uh, the last big announcement for today is that a few weeks ago I, in, I reviewed a book called Star of the North by D.B. John. It's a thriller set in North Korea. We did it in the the Friday before the big North uh, the big North Korea America summit in Singapore. And uh, the repercussions of that summit are still going to be felt for a very, very long time. The book itself opens a lid, lifts the lid on what happens in North Korea. It's set in 2010. And it is a thriller. It's based on a lot of evidence that the author, as a journalist, found in other, you know, he went to North Korea. He read a lot of nonfiction on North Korea. He toured the country, so he did see firsthand what the regime allowed him to see. And the reason I'm mentioning this now is because I've managed to secure an interview with D.B. John, which will be airing in a few weeks' time. But that's something very exciting to look forward to. Somebody who has been to North Korea, seen the people in North Korea, try and try, he's, he's researched North Korea a lot. He's written an explosive thriller about North Korea. He'll be on our show and he'll be sharing some of the things that he's seen in North Korea and some of the things in his book with us here on People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. Now for our Thriller Friday. I'm going to start off with a, a non-fiction. It's a true crime thriller. The book is called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. It's written by Michelle McNamara, who is the author of the website True Crime Diary. She earned an MFA in fiction writing from the University of Minnesota, and she has sold television. She had sold television pilots to ABC and to Fox, and a screenplay to, screenplay to Paramount. She also worked as a consultant for Dateline NBC. She lived in Los Angeles. She passed away before this book was published. She's survived by her husband, Patton Oswalt, and their daughter, Alice. The book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, is a masterful true crime account of the Golden State Killer. And as I said, Michelle McNamara, who's the author, 
is a gift was a gifted journalist. She died tragically while investigating the case. This book has made the Golden Gate Killer a very, very topical news event, especially in America, but around the world as well. For more than 10 years, a mysterious and violent predator committed 50 sexual assaults in Northern California before moving south, where he perpetrated 10 sadistic murders. Then he disappeared, eluding capture by multiple police forces and some of the best detectives in the area. Three decades later, Michelle McNamara, a true crime journalist who created the popular website TrueCrimeDiary.com, was determined to find the violent psychopath she called the Golden State Killer. Michelle poured over police reports, interviewed victims, and embedded herself in the online communities that were as obsessed with the case as she was. I'll Be Gone in the Dark, the masterpiece McNamara was writing at the time of her sudden death, offers an atmospheric snapshot of a moment in American history and the chilling account of a criminal mastermind and the wreckage he left behind. It is also a portrait of a woman's obsession and her unflagging pursuit of the truth. This is true crime, and it is a very, very powerful book. I'm just going to read from Gillian Flynn, the author of Gone Girl, uh, what she's written as a forward to this book. The book's I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. It is an investigative journalist's search for the Golden State Killer. Michelle McNamara did die tragically before the book was completed. It has been published. Uh, it, was, uh, it was it was it was the polished. It was polished by one of her co-workers who then submitted it to the publishers. It's published in South Africa by Faber and Faber. Before the Golden State Killer, there was the girl. Michelle will tell you about her. The girl dragged into the alley off Pleasant Street, murdered and left like so much trash. The girl, a young 20-something, was killed in Oak Park, Illinois, a few blocks from where Michelle grew up in a busy Irish Catholic home. Michelle, the youngest child of six kids, signed her diary entries, Michelle the writer. She said the murder ignited her interest in true crime. We would have made a good, if perhaps a strange, pair. At the same time, in my young teens back in Kansas City, Missouri, I too was an aspiring writer, although I gave myself a slightly loftier moniker in my journal, Gillian the Great. Like Michelle, I grew up in a big Irish family, went to a Catholic school, nurtured a fascination with the dark. I read Truman Capote's In Cold Blood at age 12, a cheap second-hand purchase, and this would launch my lifelong obsession with true crime. I love reading true crime, but I've always been aware of the fact that, as a reader, I'm actively choosing to be a consumer of someone else's tragedy. So, like any responsible consumer, I try to be careful in the choices I make. I read only the best. Writers who are dogged, insightful, and humane. It was inevitable that I would find Michelle. I'm reading the introduction to the book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. The book's written by Michelle McNamara. She passed away before she finished the book. So the introduction was written by Julian Flynn, who's the author of Gone Girl, amongst many other dark crime thrillers. I've always thought the least appreciated aspect of a great true crime writer is humanity. Michelle McNamara has an uncanny ability to get into the minds of not just killers, but the cops who hunted them, the victims they destroyed, and the trail of grieving relatives left behind. 
As an adult, I became a regular visitor of her remarkable blog, The True, True, Tri- True Crime Diary. You should drop her a line, my husband would urge. She was from Chicago. I live in Chicago. Both of us were moms who spent unwholesome amounts of time looking under rocks at the dark sides of humanity. I resisted my husband's urgings. I think the closest I came to meeting Michelle was introducing myself to an aunt of hers at a book event. She loaned me her phone and I texted Michelle something notably unawfully like, you are the coolest. The truth was, I was unsure whether I wanted to meet this writer. I felt outmatched by her. I create characters. She had to deal with facts. Go where the story took her. She had to earn the trust of weary, weary investigators, brave the mountains of paperwork that may contain that one crucial piece of information and convince devastated families and friends to needle around in old wounds. She did all this with a particular sort of grace, writing in the night as her family slept, from a rune strewn with the daughter's construction paper, scribbling down California penal codes in crayon. I'm a nasty collector of killers, but I wasn't aware of the man Michelle would dub the Golden State Killer until she started writing about this nightmare, who was responsible for 50 sexual assaults and at least 10 murders in California during the 1970s and 80s. This was a decades-old cold case. Witnesses and victims had moved away or passed away or moved on. The case encompassed multiple jurisdictions in both Southern and Northern California and involved myriad crime files that lacked the benefits of DNA or lab analysis. There are a few, there are a very few writers who would take this on, fewer still who would do it well. Michelle's dogginess in pursuing this case was astounding. In a typical instance, she tracked down a pair of cufflinks that had been stolen from a Stockton crime scene in 1977 on the, vintage, on, on the website of a vintage store in Oregon. But she didn't do just this. She would, could also tell you that boys' names beginning with N were relatively rare, appearing only once in the top 100 names of the 1930s and 40s, when the original owner of the cufflinks was likely born. Mind you, this isn't even a clue leading to the killer. It's a clue leading to the cufflinks the killer stole. This dedication to particulars was typical. Writes Michelle, I once spent an afternoon tracking down every detail I could about a, num- a, n- a member of the 1972 Rio Americana High School water polo team because in the yearbook photo he appears, appeared lean and to have big calves, a possible physical trait of the Golden State Killer. This is the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark, written by Michelle McNamara, who died before the book was published. I was reading from the introduction by Gillian Flynn, She's the author of Gone Girl, amongst many other dark crime thrillers. But this book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, is true crime, and it's one woman's obsessive search for the Golden State Killer, true crime in its best, and uh, it's published by Faber and Faber, and it is available. And it's a testament to a woman who wanted to pursue a killer to make the society that she lived that much safer. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We'll be back with more thrillers for Thriller Friday straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are doing thrillers. Today's Thriller Friday, the perfect genre to take to a 
bed or the lounge, find a spot in the sun and sit and lose yourself in a book that will give you not only enjoyment but excitement at the same time as well. We've looked at I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer. And as I said, this case, the Golden State Killer, has become very, very topical. This, the, the launch of this book has brought this serial murderer to the forefront of American media and from there to the rest of the world. All the titles that we discuss in today have been posted onto our Facebook page. So if you are only able to catch snippets of the show, be sure to go to Facebook, search People of the Book on 101.9 High FM and find out what other titles were mentioned today. Also, all our shows are podcast. Go to, high, if, go to the website for highfm.com and find the podcast. Scroll across to Friday, click on People of the Book, and you have unlimited podcasts going back months. The interviews we've had, the books that we've reviewed, and you can catch up on anything, anything that you've missed. From California, we're now going to Corsica, and we've got a book translated from the French into English. The book is called Time is a Killer. The author is Michelle Bussy. The publisher is Vadenfeld and Nicholson. Michelle Bussy is a very, very decorated French crime thriller writer. His first book after the crash was a huge success, both critically and commercially. His next book was Blackwater Lilies and then Don't Let Go. This new book is Time is a Killer, and it is quite a big and entertaining thriller. In this big thriller, which is, you can't put it down, set in Corsica, best-selling French author Michel Bussy tells the story surrounding a terrible car accident which claimed the lives of three people in 1989, the mother, father, and the adored older brother of 15-year-old Clotilde Idrissi. Though she was injured, Clotilde survived the accident when the car her father was driving careened off a cliff. But she was so traumatized in the accident's aftermath that she has never set foot on Corsica since then. Now, 27 years later, Clotilde has finally returned to the island from France with her husband Frank and her moody teenage daughter Valentine. She is hoping to resolve her residual fears and her questions about the accident, and also to build a bridge to her daughter. With impeccable pacing, Bussy alternates the two time periods in successive chapters, creating, in the odd-numbered chapters, a vibrant narrative told by Clotilde as a 15-year-old vacationing in Corsica, and in the even-numbered chapters, creating a parallel narrative told by the now 42-year-old Clotilde as she returns to the island. Older, more sophisticated but still curious, she's anxious to put to rest the questions she still has about the accident. Then there is an additional narrator who provides a ghost-like third voice, asking questions and providing commentary on the contents of a personal journal believed lost that Clotilde was writing on the day of the accident. Bussy carefully delineates the personalities and the backgrounds of the characters living on Corsica. And in the case of Clotilde and her family, 
those who have come to visit and reconnect with family and people they knew from the time of the accident. Corsica also appears as a character in the book with the traditions and the culture and the cuisine of Corsica making quite a starring role throughout the pages of the book. The book is classic Michel Bussi. He's a great, great thriller writer. It's dark and it holds you to the last page and the book is available. That is published by Vadenfeld and Nicholson. Michelle Bussi's Time is a Killer. The next book we're going to look at is the second book by Australian author Jane Harper. Jane Harper's first book was called The Dry and it really, really put her on the the, the dark thriller map. Uh, it was a book that almost everybody last year when it came out put on their, not everybody, every newspaper, every magazine, put on their list of books of the year. And Jane Harper's second book, her follow-up, is called Force of Nature. It's also published like her first book by Little Brown. Uh, her first book, The the Dry, won the CWA Gold Dag Award in 2017. So she hit the crime of the, 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 the dark thriller scene with a pretty, with a pretty powerful arrival. Now, her next book, Force of Nature, also set in Australia, set in the uh, fictional area that her first book, The Dry, was set in. One missing, four traumatized. That's the group of women who went on a hike in Force of Nature. This is a gripping follow-up to The Dry. It's a police detective it's a police procedural. The police detective who we were introduced to for the first time in the dry air and folk here investigates an outward bound hiking trip that loses its way in the Australian bush. Jane Harper's 2017 debut, The Dry, as I mentioned, was an international bestseller, has now been optioned by the production company behind the film of Gone Girl. So there's a possibility you'll be seeing The Dry on the big screen in the near future and Force of Nature which is her second book looks likely to attract similar enthusiasm from a growing crowd of Jane Harper fans it's a gripping procedural with the narrative chops and assured pace of the best Hollywood thrillers if you had to give this book an elevator pitch it would be deliverance with estrogen or mid-aged women at picnic at hanging rock First introduced in the dry, Aaron Falk is a police officer in the Melbourne Investigation Unit, the, sorry, the Financial Investigation Unit in Melbourne, Australia. Along with his partner, Carmen Cooper, he has pressured Alice Russell, an employee of a family-run conglomerate called Bailey Tenants, into cooperating with them in building their case against the company for unspecified financial picadillos. But Alice has gone missing while on an executive adventure's outward-bound course with four other Bailey tenants' employees. Those four other employees are the CEO, Jill Bailey, a twitchy, a twitchy old school friend, Lauren, and dysfunctional twins, Brianna and Beth, all of whom emerge from the bush traumatized by the events surrounding Alice's disappearance. Throw in a competing male team that includes Jill's shady brother, 
Dan, along with the unsolved mystery of a local serial killer, and the desperate last message Alice left on Falk's mobile phone, and the scene is captivatingly set. The story spools deftly between the present tense of Falk and Cooper's investigation and the past tense of the expedition leading up to Alice's disappearance, while filling us in on everyone's backstories. As in the Dra, which drew a lot of its power from its setting in the remote arid town of Kiawara, once again the hostile bushland of the Giralang Rangers plays a major part in the book. The women quickly lose their way, geographically and emotionally. Unspoken rifts are acknowledged, then disagreements turn physical. The rapid descent into feral chaos, once the city folk are far from civilization, in Jane Harper's very, very... Uh, assured hands it's all satisfyingly done and the book then moves on and on and on with the sustained force that Jane Harper introduced us to in the dry continuing here in Force of Nature so this is Jane Harper's second book Force of Nature set in the same Australian uh, outback that her first book the dry was set in it's a great dark thriller in a very very hot and sunny area uh, place part of Australia, and it's once again making Jane Harper's name mentioned in the same breath as Gillian Flynn and the other greats of very dark crime and uh, thriller writing. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We'll be back with more thrillers for Thriller Friday straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is uh, our weekly book show, and today we're doing Friday, Thriller Friday. Cold, we're, uh, cold, you know, what's shouting, cold, winter colds. Uh, everyone can find a book that we've spoken about today, or we will speak about, that grabs their attention. You can get one of them from a bookshop, curl up on a warm spot with a cup of coffee, and during the school holidays or over the weekend, you can read a book. And to help you make that reality that much easier, we've got a giveaway. The book is Golden Prey. It's by John Sanford. Sanford. It's published by Simon & Schuster. And his great uh, fictional crea uh, character, Lucas Davenport, is back. Thanks to some very influential people whose lives he saved, Lucas is no longer working for the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, but for the U.S. Marshals Service and with unusual scope. He gets to pick his own cases, whatever they are, wherever they lead him. And where they've led him this time is into real trouble. A Biloxi, Mississippi drug cartel counting house gets robbed and suitcases full of cash disappear, leaving behind five bodies, including that of a six-year-old girl. Davenport takes the case, which quickly spirals out of control as cartel assassins, including a torturer known as the Queen of Home Improvement Tools, race against Davenport to find the shooters who knocked over the counting house. Things get really ugly fast, and neither the cartel killers nor the hold-up men give a damn about whose lives Davenport might have saved. To them, he's just another target. This is... John Sanford, Golden Prey. All you have to do is what's uh, SMS us on 34519 with your name and the title of the book that you are currently reading. That's 34519. 
SMS us and uh, you could be winning John Sanford's Golden Prey. He's a, go- he's a global best-selling author and uh, this book will not let you down if you're looking for crime thriller. The next book we're going to look at, back into dark, creepy thrillers, is called The House Swap. It's written by Rebecca Fleet, published by Doubleday, and it's a simple premise. When Carolyn and Francis receive the offer of a house swap, they jump at the chance to have a week away from home. They live in Leeds. They're going to move into someone's house in London. After the difficulties of the past few years, they've worked hard to rebuild their marriage for their son's sake. Now they want to reconnect as a couple. On arrival, they find a house that is stark and sinister in its emptiness. It's hard to imagine what kind of person lives here. Then gradually, Carolyn begins to uncover some signs of life. Signs of her life. The flowers in the bathroom, the music in the CD player, all might seem innocent to her husband, but to her they are anything but. It seems the person they have swapped house with is someone she used to know, someone she's desperate to leave in her past. But that person is now in her home and wants to make sure she'll never forget. That dark, creepy, domestic thriller. Uh, this is the type of book that um, most probably keep you looking at the front door of your house, making sure that it's locked with the key in the keyhole so that anyone who might have access to your doors, to your keys, will never be able to enter your house. Now, what I want to do now is read something that Rebecca Fleet, the author of The House Swap, wrote about why she wrote this book, The House Swap. So this is Rebecca Fleet's own words, uh, the, the, the ideas behind The House Swap. We all have our secrets, even if we don't consciously define them as such. Part of our lives that we choose to keep hidden away, perhaps because we fear the reactions of others, perhaps because they stir up feelings of guilt, shame or embarrassment in us that we would rather not confront, or perhaps simply because they feel too private and precious to share. I've always been fascinated by the gap between the personas we portray to the outside world and the people we are when we're alone. For some people, this gap is little more than a sliver, a series of subtle alterations. For others, it's a vast gap, and it's almost impossible to tell who falls into which category. It's for this reason, I think, that I first became intrigued by the idea of house swaps. The concept has become so commonplace these days, popularized by Airbnb and the like, that we really stop to think about its significance. Our houses are the places where our private selves come out to play, and whether we realize it or not, they're littered with clues and signposts as to who we really are. These clues accumulate steadily over years, so much so that if I were asked to remove them, to anonymize my house, I wouldn't even know where to start. There's something more than a little sinister about the idea of someone being in your own space when you aren't there to direct and divert them, to guide them towards the most palatable interpretation of who you are and how you live. And it cuts both ways. In the first chapter of my novel, The House Swap, my protagonist Caroline recalls a television program she has seen where a psychic wanders around a haunted house talking about the tragedies ingrained in its walls and infected the in, the infected heaviness of the air. Caroline's own experience of living in someone else's house turns out to be similar. Only the ghosts of the presence she senses there is very much alive and rather less than friendly. 
ultimately, I think the house swap trends taps into a kind of trusting vulnerability in all of us that can be dangerous. We wouldn't dream of picking a stranger off the street or the internet and sitting them down to tell them all the intimate minutiae of our lives. Yet we'll open up our houses to them, give them the time and space and solitude to pick over our possessions, form their judgments, and do what they want with the knowledge they've gained. Of course, most people are pleasant and harmless, but not all of them. It's for all these reasons that I'll be checking into a hotel the next time I go away and leaving my own door firmly locked. After all, when you leave the key under the plant pot, do you really know who's picking it up and letting themselves in? This is the words of Rebecca Fleet, the author of The House Swap. It's published by Doubleday. It's a dark domestic thriller. And this is People of the Book on 101.9, High FM. The next dark domestic thriller we're going to talk about, also to do with marriage and to do with domestic arrangements. And it's been out for a while, and it's had rave reviews from everybody who's read it. It's called The Wife Between Us. It's actually written by a a pair of authors, Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen. Between the two of them, they've spent many, many years in either journalism or publishing. they New York-based. This is The Wife Between Us. It's published by Macmillan. Twisted and deliciously chilling, Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen's The Wife Between Us exposes the secret complexities of an enviable marriage and the dangerous truths we ignore in the name of love. The young, vibrant woman stealing a husband isn't a new trope. But it sure is a tired one. Good thing there's The Wife Between Us, Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen's new book, which puts a great twist on an old genre. As for the twist itself, it will surprise you. And even if you are a jaded thriller reader, the the the, the twist when it comes still, still packs a punch. The setup seems simple. Nelly is a young and idealistic nursery school teacher preparing to marry the handsome Richard. Everything seems to be going well, but she keeps getting strange phone calls, mostly heavy breathing from a blocked number. Is it enough to ruin her post-wedding glow? Not really, but she's afraid of losing touch with her roommate and best friend Samantha once she's married, and she hopes that that won't happen. Seems like normal concerns for a bride-to-be, right? Well, sure, except Richard's controlling tendencies, now Richard's the fiancé, start making themselves known in incremental ways. For a surprise, Richard has nearly done a blindfold, which normally wouldn't be a big deal, but he knows that Nelly doesn't like blindfolds. He knows they make her uncomfortable. Nevertheless, Nelly is determined to bear it with a smile. Why is she wearing a blindfold? Because Richard's taking her to her wedding gift. He drives her to a house, takes off the blindfold and shows her the house that is bought for her as a wedding gift. He is beaming. You bought this, she gaped. At first blush, this seems like a phenomenal wedding present, right? But it's a house. And shouldn't it be something that a couple picks out together? Not to mention that Nelly doesn't particularly want to move away from the hustle and bustle of Manhattan. Meanwhile, Vanessa, Richard's bitter ex, is living with her aging aunt Charlotte, and relegated to working at Saks Fifth Avenue as a clothing sales associate, wait, forced to wait on the well-put-together women she used to socialize with. In fact, she gets a package from Richard that perfectly frames her pain. This is a quote from the book. 
I use scissors to slice through the masking tape and open up my past. Our wedding album is on top. I lift the heavy satin keepsake. Beneath it, I see some of my clothes neatly folded. When I left, I took mostly cold weather outfits. Richard has sent ensembles suitable for summertime. He has selected the pieces that always look the best on me. At the bottom is a padded black jewellery box. I open it and I see a diamond choker. It's the necklace I could never bear to wear because Richard gave it to me after one of our worst fights. She takes out her wedding album and is flooded with painful memories, seemingly seething with jealousy at the new wife-to-be. That's Nelly. Now, Vanessa becomes obsessed with Richard's young bride-to-be. She also seems to be determined to make sure they don't get married at any cost. But in this novel, nothing is what it seems. Vanessa, the ex-wife, gets increasingly desperate and manic, and she looks back on their mar- as she looks and as she looks back on their marriage, Richard was, by all accounts, a dream husband. But dreams fade, and as Nelly looks to the future, Vanessa's past comes back to haunt her. She can't stand the thought of another woman with Richard. Handsome, wealthy Richard, who seems so attentive, so generous, but not so fast. Not wanting to give any more of the punches that this thriller packs away. Though what we could say, all I can say is that whatever you think, you will be wrong. When you read this book, you will make many assumptions. It's about a jealous wife or ex-wife obsessed with her replacement. It's about a younger woman set to marry the man she loves. The first wife seems like a disaster. Her replacement is the perfect woman. You will assume you know the motives, the history, and the anatomy of the relationships. You will be wrong. That is The Wife Between Us by Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen, published by Macmillan, and it is available right now. We'll have few more books for Thriller Friday. Uh, the next one we're going to look at is called Panic Room. And this is written by Robert Goddard. The idea behind the book, well, the, the, the story of the book is how on a Cornish cliff, the coast of England, sits a vast uninhabited modern villa. Uninhabited except for Blake a young woman of mysterious background, currently acting as the house sitter. The house has a panic room, cunningly concealed, steel-lined and impregnable, and apparently closed from within. Even Blake doesn't know it's there. She's too busy being on the run from life, from a story she thinks she's escaped. But her remote existence is going to be threatened when people come looking for the house's owner, who... His name is Jack Harness, and he's the missing rogue pharmaceutical entrepreneur. Soon people with questionable motives will be asking Blake the sort of questions she can't or won't answer. And will the panic room ever give up its secrets? The book is Panic Room, Danger Exists on the Inside. It's published by Bantam Press, written by Robert Goddard. It is available now. And what I want to share with you or the listeners right now is... Robert Goddard wrote a piece about why he wrote the panic room. There's a long this is the word in the words of Robert Goddard. There's a long tradition of locked room murder mysteries in crime fiction. The plot of my new novel Panic Room is a contemporary twist on that. It hinges at least apparently on an ex an, on, on an extrapolation of the tradition into our present day era of high tech security in the home. Panic rooms have become must-have accessories for those with enough wealth both to acquire large and often remote properties 
and to attract the worst kind of attention to themselves, the criminal kind of attention, that is. In the event of a break-in, the owner can retreat to their panic room, which can only be locked from inside and can't be opened from outside once it is secured. Steel reinforced doors and walls, video cameras feeding images from all other rooms in the house, dedicated power and telephone lines and a store of food and water make it seemingly impregnable. But a hiding place can become, under certain circumstances, a prison or worse. A famous example is the death of the Brazilian-Lebanese banker Edwin Safra at his apartment in Monte Carlo in December 1999. He was killed by smoke inhalation while sheltering from a fire and supposed intruders. The case has become a magnet for conspiracy theories because of the Various bizarre circumstances, but what's not in doubt is that the secure room to which Safra retreated from a perceived threat became his tomb. The panic room, as a danger in its own right, is the essence of the idea I had for the story. What is a householder to think if one day they find their panic room locked? This can surely only mean someone is inside, but who and why? And what do they intend to do? They can see you but you can't see them. They can emerge at a time of their choosing, but you can't enter. Where did they come from? When did they arrive? Are they dead or alive? What will happen next? I'm reading from an article written by Robert Goddard. He's the author of Panic Room. It's published by Bantam Press. This is the reason why he wrote the book. There are no easy, obvious answers, and you can't force your way in to learn the truth. So what are your options? Optimistically, write the whole thing off as a weird technical fault, or... Get out of the house and stay out. For the character in my book who confronts this dilemma, the situation is even more complicated. Flight isn't much of an option when you have nowhere to flee to. It's not actually your house, but the owner has allowed you to take refuge there from problems of your own. You didn't even know there was a panic room until you found it locked. If it really is a panic room, of course, but then what else could it be? A panic room is designed to be a hiding place, but that means it could be hiding more than just its occupants. What exactly is the secret that lies within its impenetrably thick steel walls? That Robert Goddard panic room, if that doesn't get you running to get a copy of the book to see what's in his panic room, it'll take a lot. I don't know what it'll take. So great thrillers, psychological thriller all around the panic room. The next book we're going to look at, another marriage-based thriller, is called Anatomy of a Scandal. It's published by Simon and Schuster. The author is Sarah Vaughan. Sarah Vaughan is a. This is her first. This is. I think this is. This is her first novel, and it's very contemporary. It's politically charged, and it's. The type of book that you'll read with the same amount of trepidation that I suppose you'd pick up the wife between us. Seems like the much-discussed marriage thriller is still going strong if Sarah Vaughan's Anatomy of a Scandal is anything to go by. The story begins with Kate, a young ambitious QC, that's a, in England, she's a barrister who's made her name prosecuting the very worst sexual assault cases. Kate, however, is single, a divorcee, the kind of woman people describe as married to her job. She's not the wife in the setup. That role falls to Sophie, a West London-based stay-at-home mother of two, 
Healthbun or Pair of Course, and wife to James Whitehouse. James has always been the golden boy, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, educated at Eton and Oxford, which is where he met Sophie. He then made some money in the City of London and is now a junior Home Office Minister, Tory, obviously, and he's a confidant of the Prime Minister. In this book, the Prime Minister is a man called Tom Southern. James and Tom have kept each other's confidences since they were 13. For much of the book, we teased by mysterious mentions of a particular incident that occurred while both were members of the Libertines, an exclusive Oxford dining club modelled on the real-life Bellingdon, and the Prime Minister is known for his loyalty. Recent events are going to test this bond, though. James had an ill-advised affair with his 28-year-old aide, Olivia, and the papers have got hold of the story. The British press being what it is could destroy careers and marriages. Sophie's world comes crashing down around her, but she puts on a brave face and rallies. Then Olivia, that's the woman that James had his affair with, accuses James of rape. In taking its subject as an assault that's not perpetrated by a faceless stranger in a back alley holding his victim at knife point, but rather by someone the victim knows, a rape committed by a personable, attractive, dare I say, middle-class professional who has already had a relationship with the complainant, the sort of man you might acknowledge in the street or at the school gate that you might be happy to have for dinner or to introduce to your kids or parents is easy to call, it's this makes it easy to call anatomy of a scandal the hashtag Me Too marriage thriller of 2018. Ultimately, though, the rape in and of its the rape in and of itself, and whether indeed it was rape, that this question does add extra tension, isn't the point. It's a symptom of a certain type of toxic masculinity that's bred by institutionalized male privilege. And in her critique of these societal structures, Sarah Vaughan's novel is actually very prescient. And this is a this is what you call a marriage thriller, a dark marriage thriller. A woman who wants to believe her husband, another one wants to destroy him, connected to Whitehall and the British Prime Minister, and there's some dark secrets in everyone's past that also threaten to come to the surface. So if you are enjoying all the marriage thrillers so far from the house swap to the wife between us, then Anatomy of a Scandal is perfect reading as well. We have an ad break. We'll be back with one last book and one more giveaway in the last few minutes of our show. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Uh, this is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've got a few minutes to wrap up the show. First, we're going to have another giveaway. What is a book show without giving away books? We have to reward all of our reading listeners. The book is called The Blinds. It's written by Adam Sternberg. It's published by Faber and Faber. And imagine a place populated by criminals, but ones who have opted into an experimental program to win new identities and a second chance, their violent memories erased. Welcome to The Blinds, a dusty town in rural Texas, populated by misfits who are no longer sure if they perpetrated a serious crime or just witnessed one. What they do know is that if they ever try to leave, they will end up dead. For eight years, Sheriff K. 
Calvin Cooper has kept an uneasy peace while that is, until that is a suicide and a murder occur in quick succession, raising dangerous questions and bringing mysterious outsiders to his forgotten town. Simmering with violence, heartbreak and deception, The Blinds by Adam Sternberg is a provocative, keenly intelligent thriller which lingers long in the memory. All you have to do to win a copy of The Blinds is WhatsApp, uh, sorry, SMS us on 34519 with your name and the title of the book that you are currently reading. Now we've got a few minutes for the last book on our show and this is... What, what, will a, what will a thriller show be without Scandi, Scandi crime, Scandi noir? So we've got a book called The Darkness, written by Ragnar Johansson. It's set in Iceland. It's the beginning of his Hidden Iceland trilogy. The first book is The Darkness. He hasn't written the second and the third yet, but we already know that their names will be The Island and The Mist. And what is so interesting about this trilogy is that he's written them in reverse order with the events of the darkness taking place in 2012 and the next two books the island and the mist taking place decades earlier and this book the darkness is uh real good nordic noir it's only fair to say that if you are a fan of Nordic Noir, Nordic Noir, you will love this book. The Johansson first came to wider attention in 2015 with the start of his Dark Iceland series, focusing on rookie policeman Ari Thor Arason. And from the titles, it's easy to see how much he uses the geographical and meteorological conditions of Iceland to craft his work. His other books were White Out, Snow Blind, Night Blind. You get the picture. His new book, The Darkness, is the first in his three-part trilogy called Hidden Iceland. The Darkness will grip you from the start, and it will leave you wanting to read the other two novels in the series right now, but you're going to have to wait for them to be written and then published. The book draws the reader in, offering up enough red herrings and twists to leave you unsure as to what will happen next while keeping proceedings plausible and realistic enough to believe in. There's also a refreshing absence of of one of the things that Nordic noir thrillers have too much of, which is filler. Here, every point on the page is necessary for the very tight plot the focus of the story is on soon-to-be retired detective inspector Hulda Hermannsdottir, who's given the chance, before she retires from the Reykjavik police force, to tackle a cold case of her choosing. And then she'll be pushed into early retirement. So far, so fairly standard. However, Johansson melds together strands of Hulda's life from across several decades, keeping the reader in suspense before letting them in on one secret at a time, building layer upon layer, of plot, and once again using the beauty and the danger of the Icelandic countryside as an integral integral part of the story. The story is the the cold case that Hulda Hermannsdottir chooses, and that's a case from a few years before when a young woman was found dead on a remote seaweed-covered rock. The woman who was looking for asylum found only a watery grave. Her death was ruled a suicide after a cursory investigation. But Hulda soon realises 
that there is something far darker to this case. This was not the only young woman to disappear around that time, and no one is telling the full story. When her own force tries to put the brakes on the investigation, Hulda must just with, has just days to uncover the truth, even if it means risking her own life. So this is Ragnar Johansson's The Darkness, published by Michael Joseph. Classic, dark, Scandi thriller. And that's the show for today. Just to quickly recap what we've looked at. We've looked at... Um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, True Crime by Michelle McNamara, Force of Nature, a woman goes missing on a corporate retreat in the Australian Outback, that's by Jane Harper, Time is a Killer, a French crime thriller set on the island of Corsica by Michelle Bussey, The House Swap by Michelle Fleet, uh, make you think twice before you sign your house up to be an Airbnb hotel. The Wife Between Us, a marriage thriller. The Panic Room, what happens if you find a closed panic room in the house that you're house-sitting. Anatomy of a Scandal by Sarah Vaughan, uh, a marriage political thriller. And then Darkness by Ragnar Johansson, uh, some really dark Icelandic crime thriller. And then the two books which we gave away, there's Golden Prey by John Sanford and The Blinds by Adam Sternberg. And until next week, when I'll have Tracy Schwarzer from Donovan Ball in the studio, good Shabbos and keep reading.